This week, Sean Payton, the Saints head coach, opens up like never before. When you say a year, they are trying to break you. On leading the team after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. We just had this whole thing as a young staff that we were not going to be allowed to say the K word. And on the Bounty Gate scandal that left him suspended for an entire season. It's one of the weaknesses of our commission in that there's too much emotion. And when the penalties came down, it was just, it was unprecedented. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I want to start by taking you back to when you were growing up. Um, you said football gave you the confidence for the first time to have a goal. Um, in what way? So I think, look, for me, I feel like our children, um, as a parent, I feel like one of the best gifts you can get is a teacher, um, a coach, a counselor, um, somebody that touches your child like in an above and beyond way. And oftentimes, I think we, if we're lucky, get one, maybe two of those people. I got one as, as my high school coach. And what I mean by that, it, it, yeah, in other words, like, like every high school freshman or sophomore, you know, working on getting a driver's license, making grades. Um, you know, certainly college was a goal, and yet it wasn't, uh, it wasn't on the forefront as much as it is today for our, our generation that are in high school and, and the way they prepare for the tests. And, and so Jared Bishop um, came to my high school in Naperville in, I'm going to say, 1979, my freshman year, before my sophomore year, and brought with him, um, you know, a new way of thinking, uh, a new staff. And all of us young players were eager to play sports. But he became more than just, I mean, he taught English. He was really good for the quarterback, and I played that position. But yeah, I can recall him benching me, you know, when I was a sophomore on the sophomore game because I got a D in an English paper. He just became someone that, that gave me confidence as a player, but also as a thinker in that you know, he was the one that would say repeatedly, you're going to coach someday. And it, you know, we're all looking for some direction. It's not like it's very normal in high school to know, hey, this is what I'm going to do for a living. You know, you, you want to, we all wanted to play. You know, we wanted to play in college. And fortunately, I was able to get a scholarship and do that. And, but in the back of your head, you're thinking, all right, what's plan B if that ends? And those dreams and those, you know, those goals, I think, um, were planted by him. Like, how responsible do you think he is during that period of your life for really positively influencing you? Extremely. Um, look, uh, both of my parents, my mother and father, uh, had a huge influence on me. Um, but I would say then he he was that next I mean, he definitely, um, and it wasn't like, look, he was taking me from being, oh, a bad student going the wrong direction or anything like that. He just, he brought confidence out in me and as a young athlete. And, you know, I, I was a backup 
in football my junior year, actually. His son was the starter and then got the opportunity to start my senior year and fortunately got recruited out of high school. But those are, those are interesting ages for, for our teens, I think, when you're 13 and you're 14. You know, and I, and I think that, you know, if it's a music instructor, if it's someone in science, if it's someone in any in endeavor that stimulates an interest in a, in a child that's young and that really, that, that's, I mean, I think that's, for a parent now looking back at it, I mean, that, that's the greatest gift you can get, you know, for your children. Someone to, to have that same interest in caring uh, and maybe they can do something that your parents aren't able to do when it comes to specifically a sport. So you end up getting a scholarship to Eastern Illinois. Yeah. Uh, I want to take you to your red shirt freshman year, Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, take it from there. Man, my red shirt freshman year. So D didn't you no, have like I a remember. moment? So all, yeah, all of us. <laughs> so we all, the freshman class, uh, get there and we're all excited and we think every one of us thinks we're going to have immediate success and then very quickly you realize you're starting at the bottom again here and um, we made the playoffs and we were getting ready to play Jackson State and it was Thanksgiving week and I remember I was one of the one of the quarterbacks that was kept there during the break to be a third string player in the event of injury and kind of feeling pretty good about that and uh, it was the night before the game, it was Friday, and Daryl Mudra was the head coach, and we we're all in the meeting room, and you could hear the rain outside, and Daryl was just so afraid that this field was gonna be messy, because he felt like we had good team speed, and we're in the meeting, myself and Calvin Pierce, maybe a couple other freshmen, and the door opens from outside, and you know the offensive coaches were talking, and Coach Mudra was out with his mutters on, you know, and he looked in the room, and he said, Calvin Pierce, Sean Payton, come with me. Hell, you're not going to play tomorrow. And, and all of a sudden, we had squeegees in our hand. And I remember like we were literally squeegeeing puddles off the field the night before the game. And, and I remember looking at Calvin thinking, man, it's tough sledding right here. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you were expecting to be the starting quarterback pretty quickly. Um, didn't exactly no, it didn't. work out that way right off the bat. So we were all redshirted. And there was a group of underclassmen coming back, a couple of close friends. Um, and I struggled in that spring. This is our, our, our redshirt freshman year, our second year. And one of my closest friends today, John Rafferty, was named the starter. And it was difficult because we were so caught up into who we were just as football players as opposed to all the other things that were, were happening in our lives. You know, we're, we're getting an education. So right away, you're thinking about transferring. You know, it was just, I remember just being consumed with the idea that, and if he's starting and he's the same grade as I am, that's gonna be difficult, you know, for the next four years to be the backup. And, and when I was talking to him the uh, other day, he said he vividly recalls a moment where you both were roommates. He's a we starting are, quarterback. We were you, close you friends at that time and to this day. And uh, he said he was the starter, and a newspaper reporter calls the dorm room. You answer and asks for him because he's the starter. And he said still to this day he remembers the look on your face and how much that bothered you. It's kind of more of that personal battle to to 
to playing your best. And one of the challenges with that is when it's a quarterback position, it's not like so many other positions on a football field where multiple guys play. And so there'd be a lot of, you know, we'd have a big win and he'd play well. Our parents would all come down to the game. He was from Southern Illinois and I was from the suburbs of Chicago. And it was difficult. And I, and I think probably at the end of that year when he was injured and I played in the following year when I was starting, it was probably flipped around and yet um, he, he's, he's a special person. He's one of my closest friends today and, and we laugh about it all the time. We laugh about all these little things that could have happened. What made you decide against transferring? At, I probably at that wasn't point? good enough. You know, it, look, I think one of the challenges we have today even is the minute we hit a roadblock, we look for a path east or west, and oftentimes the obstacle, like the book says, is the way. You know, it's really over, and it's not um, around. And and I'm pretty sure my, I'm sure my my dad or mother both would have said, "Well, they're giving you a scholarship. You're staying there." Maybe it was Coach Bishop. Maybe it was the fact that you'd be like painting apartments in Naperville. I think you said and you um, not gotten into coaching. But what ultimately drove you? that direction so I listen I wanted to play and man desperately wanted to play and I recall you know playing in that first year of arena football it was 1987 it was the very first year of the league um, Jim Foster had, had started it the training camp was up there in Wheaton there were four teams Pittsburgh Chicago I believe Washington and Denver and I was on the Chicago Bruisers and after our second game, I ended up going to, to the CFL as a backup, Ottawa, and was there for maybe a month and a half. And then the next stop was a month and a half with the Bears during the 87 strike. And then the next stop was over in Europe. And Grisham wrote that book, Playing for Pizza, and that was right where I was at in my career. You know, in other words, I, I knew that Look, I, these were great opportunities, and I had to try out a tryout, a brief one with the Chiefs. And at some point, I knew, man, it's I, I need to. I knew I wanted to coach. I wanted to coach college football. Really, I hadn't even thought about the NFL. I wanted to coach in the Big Ten, growing up in the Midwest, and uh, and I knew that that first step would be, you know, getting a graduate assistantship somewhere, becoming a GA you know, making an impression. And fortunately, I was hired at San Diego State um, that fall of 88. Right, so you're in London and um, you find out on short notice that um, not even a, a coaching opening, a graduate uh, assistant position might be available at UNLV. Um, talk about getting there for the interview, the difficulty, so, and, and then kind of the pivotal moment of that conversation. We were. We were in season, so we're in Leicester, which is two hours north in the Midlands of England. Um, and we were playing American football there. There were four of us Americans per team. And this opportunity came up at UNLV, and Wayne Nunley is the head coach. Um, Wayne later went on and, and became a real good NFL assistant coach and uh, became someone I got to know later. But he was the head coach, and. There were a few assistant coaches that I had small ties to. Dino Babers, who's now a uh, head coach in college, he was the running back coach. And there was another assistant. 
And look, when you're trying to become a GA, you know, it's a quick phone call. Hey, I can get there. And the problem was, you know, getting a ticket from London into Las Vegas. Um, and I remember it was like 840 pounds, which was, I don't know, call it $1,100. I just remember, you know, having enough to, to do this flight, connecting in St. Louis, you know, getting there. I don't know what time it was. You, you're going really back, so you're gaining time. And going through the interview process, and it's short. It's not like it would be for a full-time coach. You know, you're, you're in for a day. You're going to have a sandwich, talk to a few coaches. And I'm in talking with the head coach finally, and it's Coach Nunley. And, and, and man, he's, he's an, uh, an impressive guy, a guy who uh, was doing a good job with the program. And I remember he said, now, I just got one question for you. And you know, I'm kind of like leaning over. Yep. And this is my first interview. And he said, you know, if an assistant on our staff asked you to do something for them and you thought, eh, it might not be necessarily the right thing or within the rules. How would you handle this? And man, my mind started thinking, holy cow, these guys are cheating. And, but then the whole time I'm thinking, well, I'm a GA. I'm, I, listen, if a guy asked me to do something, I'm going to be loyal and I'm going to. And so I said, you know, coach, look, I'm going to do whatever's asked of, of me and, and do it to the best of my ability. And, Wayne looked at me and said, wrong answer. <laughs> I was like, ah, it was heads or tails. Um, they had a few more candidates to visit with. I flew back to London. It was still waiting to hear from them. And the very next, within three days, uh, another opportunity arose at San Diego State, which was again out west. Um, I didn't have the option, though. I, you know, I couldn't fly back there. And fortunately, I was hired over the phone by Steve Devine, who was their assistant coach in charge of the graduate assistants. And so, Coach, the UNLV got back to me, and I already had already taken this position. But I'll never forget seeing Coach Nunley years later in our league, and and seeing him going over and just saying wrong answer, <laughs> and, and the two of us laughed about it. And he remembered. Absolutely. Sure. Oh, okay. Absolutely. And and. Um, He's a fabulous guy and, and is no longer coaching, but uh, we would always remember that. It was just one of those, I mean, literally was my first interview. I was 20, I'm going to say probably 22 years old, 23 years old. And, um, and I'm quite sure that, look, I, I was probably as nervous as could be. Philadelphia, now you're in the NFL. Uh, meeting John Gruden for the first time in the 6 a.m. comment he makes to you? So he's, look, I had coached in college for nine years, 10 years, and was getting ready to go to Maryland. And I, and I got hired by the Eagles, and I'm going to be the quarterback's coach for the Eagles. Ray Rhodes was the head coach. John was the offensive coordinator and, and uh, was a big influence at that time for me. Um, my wife, Beth, at the time was nine months pregnant, soon to, to, to deliver. And back then, we were, it was 97, so we were pagers. You know, you rented a pager for a month. You know, we weren't cell phones yet. Okay. All right? We had some box recruiting phones, but uh, 
but if your wife was pregnant, you had a pager, and and you guys relocated like eight times in your first fourteen. Yeah, years we moved. Of we moved quite a bit, yeah. about every two years, um, all for good jobs, and yet it's, it still was challenging. And so th this move was taking place to Maryland, and then very quickly it got changed. We're, we're going to Philadelphia, and I remember going into work, and I had met John already through the interview process. But you know, he was there. I don't care when you got there; he was already there. You know, you felt like he he just got there. Uh, at 3 or 4 a.m. And I remember going in and he was like, Coach Payton, I've got some tickets here. I need you to work out Jake Plummer and Jim Arianus. And I'm like, and these were quarterbacks coming out that year. Well, Plummer was at Arizona State and Arianus was at Fresno State. And I'm thinking, I got this pager on me. And holy cow, she goes into labor and I'm on the other side of the country. You know, it's going to be a problem. And uh, we were in the basement of Veterans Stadium at that time, so the offices certainly were anything but posh. They were, they were really uh, outdated. Uh, I didn't really have an office. I had an area in John's room, you know, where I kept like a, a little phone and a notebook and a, a desk. And that was a good start, though. And it wasn't a good, it wasn't a start, but it was a drastic change leaving college and, and, and then going into the NFL and then going into the NFL with someone as talented as John is. It, it was important. Like it was an important step that was sometimes um, we can't control our bloodlines relative to our careers. And sometimes you just fall into maybe some good opportunities, maybe sometimes not so good. But this was a, a good opportunity specifically as it pertained to offensive football. And it was something about a morning meeting and you arriving first that positively set the tone for the relationship, right? Yeah, I mean, we tried to, it, look, I can't recall ever arriving first, but I recall a lot of like dark circles under my eyes and, you know, John would yell out his office, Bill, I think he's close to going down, you know, and, and uh, it was part of being a new coach. Um, you immediately felt that pressure to get up to speed because not only the coaches, but the quarterbacks themselves were at such a different level uh, with their knowledge of the game. And, you know, when you're a young college coach, you think you have a lot of answers and then you, you, you realize very quickly, holy cow, this, this is a, um, a different game. And that, 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 listen, that was challenging you know, especially the, those first years. So you have a lot of great relationships, but I imagine like, them, yeah. like anybody, not everyone can be great. And you're uh, offensive coordinator at the Giants. Um, it is, I think, nearing halftime. You suggest uh, taking a knee. The then head coach, uh, Jim Fossil, uh, wants to go for it. Um, take it from there and so, kind of how look, the I, relationship That's a great, was, listen impacted by that I I um I got hired by the Giants in 99 and it was it was it was a huge step for me because it was going to be where I got my first step to coordinate to actually you know be involved in running an offense coach Fossil gave me a, a great opportunity and it's also one of those organizations that it's just I can't describe it but when you work there you realize man you were fortunate because you 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 get a uh, blueprint as to how certain things are done and handled, and it's a special place. Um, 
So yeah, in 99, I was the quarterback coach and then became the coordinator in 2000. And we had a good run, went to the Super Bowl. So it was later in 2002. And I know the play you're talking about. We were playing Arizona early in the season. And it was at the end of the half. We had 22 seconds, 18. It was one of those decisions, you know, do you get in two minute or do you just take a knee? And, but we didn't have the timeouts and we should have taken a knee. And, and look, I, I can recall the decision and I'm the play caller and yet, look, as the head coach might say, hey, I want to do this, boom, well, here we go. And look, we had a turnover, Kerry had thrown an interception and that happens. Um, and so it wasn't a, a, a question over the decision as to whether we should or shouldn't have. It happened and we ended up losing a tough game, you know, a game that, you know, we probably should have won. And didn't you get blamed for the decision well, then? So I'm on the bus afterwards and, and you have that moment where you're just kind of unwinding, getting ready to go to the airport and someone grabbed me and said, hey, they were just talking about the, you know, the halftime play and they were trying to dig and find the halftime play. And I was upset because when they asked Jim about it, our head coach Fossil. And they being the media? The media said, you know, whose who's idea? And I can remember the response exactly. He said, well, um, Ultimately, I'm the head coach. It was mine. I gave the green light. You know, insinuated he gave the green light to it, and and that bothered me a lot. I mean, I, and I've got no problem if he said, "Hey, I'm, I'm going to just say you did this," and but it was just the way it came out, and it was just um, I felt like that, and I, and I have a good relationship with 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 uh, Jim Fossil, but that was one one thing that was kind of like, ah, you don't do that, you know, and. Uh, and so it became a little strained, and yet not um, not in a way where we weren't going to work well together. Because we ended up, that was a tough year, 02. And you know, very shortly thereafter, my mother passes away, I'm going to say in September. Um, and then we have some challenges as a team. Look, Jim starts calling plays because a week he, and a half after your mom passes, he strips you the yeah, play and and, and he yeah. was very talented as an offensive coach, and so I was still as a coordinator, you know, with our staff putting putting the plan together. But he did a great job, and that was challenging. You know, there were two things going on. Here's this consumption with what we do again. You know that we talked about earlier, where you, you get so consumed with is this who we are, or is it what we do? And then all the while. Your, your mom passes and, and you're almost not spending enough time really selfishly grieving her death as, as you are worried more about your career or how this looks. That, that, that's, that was a difficult time. Um, it's uh, 10 p.m. one night at the height of the issues with the Giants and you get a call. Uh, from who? All right, so the season finishes and we go to the playoffs. Um, we're going to open in San Francisco and <clears throat> we're having success. I mean, listen, our team turned it around. Jim, Jim's done a good job and we're working, we're going, we're full speed ahead, but it was Christmas, Christmas day. And it was, it was 10 PM and I had never met or talked with, but it was, it was Parcells. 
It was Bill Parcells, and everyone knew he had just visited with Jerry Jones at Teterboro, and it was a little unusual. He couldn't really talk to me much because we were still playing. I was under contract. But he introduced himself. We talked briefly and, and agreed we'd talk after the season was over with. So sure enough, you know, a few weeks later, we ended up losing in San Francisco. And look, the, the trick was going to be I'm under contract, and Dallas is in the same division as New York. Um, and Jim was great. We, we spent time after the season. And, he specifically said, look, you're the coordinator here. I want you to return um, kind of like in the same capacity we worked this year. And, and, but he understood that I wanted to call plays. And he agreed that two weeks would be an, you know, enough time to look at some opportunities if they came, came up. We both agreed that. And we really hadn't discussed where those would be. And ironically, with Dallas being one of those teams, now it became a little tougher for the Giants and, you know, tougher when it's a division team. So to Ernie Acorsi's credit, to Wellington Maris' credit, they, look, they, they knew that it, it was a good opportunity and, and, man, here it is. All the while I'm talking to Bill and haven't met him yet and we have three of these conversations and the last one is, hey, how much do you want to make? Meet me at Republic Airport, 9 a.m. Friday, Pack for a month. We're flying to Dallas. And that was the first time I met Bill in Long Island. And, and I mean, he's obviously the legend. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, you could have had other jobs with other teams with yeah. a, a more prestigious title, the yet problem, you decided to become yeah, quarterback's absolutely. coach for Parcells. It, the, the challenge, it wasn't a challenge. Short-sightedness of me at the time, being young and not knowing any better. You know, Arizona was an opportunity to possibly go and call plays. Um, maybe Tampa Bay with John again to help there. There were a few of these teams that looked attractive. And then with Bill, it was just undefined. You know, it might be coordinator. It might be assistant head coach. I just need you to. And there was a little bit more of a leap of faith. And at the time, at the time, Beth, my wife said to me, she's like, well, this is a no-brainer. You go with Bill. And she was right, and I wasn't. I was looking at it more like, well, I'm going to be able to run the offense. And so that decision to go to, to Dallas was like going to graduate school or law school. You know, it, it was more than just worrying about if you're calling plays or worrying about if you're the coordinator by title, you know, it was getting a chance to be a part of some of the stuff that that made him so special, and um, it definitely was the right decision. And the, the hindsight's obviously twenty twenty. It seems like another decision that your ex-wife Beth was spot on. At, she, was, uh, she, just, she definitely was. Well, well and and discouraging uh, you from taking the Raiders job. And so I want to uh, yes. take you to the uh, interview with the late Raiders owner. Al Davis, yeah. from uh, walking in the room to ordering food all the way to Disney World with uh, the So I had, I had interviewed with Mr. Davis when John Gruden became the head coach there, and that was in 1998. John had gotten hired after the 97 season. I, I had a chance to interview as a quarterback coach um, only for a day, a short period of time. And, and look, Everyone in our league knew Al was one of those imposing figures. Number one, he was extremely smart. He was the only owner that had been a head coach 
a general manager, a commissioner of another league. So his, his product knowledge of, of the league was, was unbelievable. So that first experience was unnerving and, and, and obviously uh, not very long because it was for an assistant position. But three years later, then I'm in Dallas and I'm going to have a chance to interview with Al as the head coach of the Raiders. And it was 2003. And Bill had come to see me, Coach Parcells, and told me, hey, Al called. They sent the request in. I think you're going to have a chance to get this job if you want it now. It might not be what you want, though. They were having some cap problems. They just had some success. And I went out and interviewed there for one full weekend and then back again for three more days. And every time you went west like that, your time would be off. And so you'd look at the clock, and Al was a night owl. He preferred to stay up late and then come in late. But it was like 10.30 his time. and. You're famished. You haven't eaten. You're, you're, you're having this interview, and there's a lot of energy required when you're interviewing with him because it is the minute you're comfortable in one topic, he's off to the next. Salary. And, and the biggest interview of your career. Arguably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but he is a difficult person to interview with. He's not going to allow you to get comfortable in any way, shape, or form. And if you're on one topic and he feels like he's going to get to some areas where you're not as comfortable, and he's, he's very good at that. So he finally says, are you hungry? And I was like, yeah. And he called Jimmy, his assistant, and can you, can you, he goes, do you like cheeseburgers? You know, the kind at McDonald's. And I'm thinking, yeah. And I, I don't know if he's talking about Big Macs or Quarter Pound. But he's <laughs> like, no, the cheeseburgers. I'm like, yeah. So he tells Jimmy, can you go get us some of those cheeseburgers and, and bring me some of the coleslaw? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I have young kids at the time. McDonald's does not have coleslaw. They've got the cheeseburgers, and the assistant, to his credit, takes off and comes back. And he knew not on, he knew not to correct Al, but he had the KFC coleslaw and a bag of ten <laughs> McDonald Lance cheeseburgers, the kind you know that our kids would get in a Happy Meal, but like ten of them. And now it's eleven at night, and here I am, man. This is it. This is like I'm interviewing to become a head coach in the NFL, and I am having. Happy Meal cheeseburgers <laughs> and KFC coleslaw. And here's arguably, I would say, one of the most influential people in our league's history, Al Davis. Hall of Fame is interviewing me, and I'm like, oh. I just remember leaving that whole thing thinking, this is surreal. So that lasted for three days, and then I, we had a family vacation in Florida. I knew at that point I was going to get offered this job. I knew it had gone well. And we were staying at the Grand Floridian, and every night Al would call, and he would want to talk to me about who might be the coaching staff I'm putting together. You know, I, I, I wasn't hired by the Raiders. And so, this is despite knowing you're on vacation with the family. Yeah, we, like we the, were, it was 9 o'clock, yeah. and, and it was a normal hotel room, so you went, I went into the restroom and just sat, and Al would ask about, have you talked to any? Because look, if you get hired, you can't really talk to people unless you get permission. If you're not hired, you're talking to friends that you know may or may not be available. So 9 p.m., we'd have an update each night. And then on Wednesday, Thursday morning, Mike Lombardi, who was his GM at the time, and very much involved in the, in the process, and a friend of mine, um, called and said, hey, look, Al wants to get you out here. 
like now, he wants to announce this. And I said, man, Mike, this vacation ends Sunday. I promised, you know, the family this trip. And this is all happening. We're at the, we're at Animal Kingdom, which is one element to Disney, right? You're at Magic Kingdom, we're at Animal Kingdom, and we were on that little train ride. And, and I remember Mike saying, well, you need to call him then, at least try to explain to him your timetable or when you, when you can be back here. We go into, I can remember like it was yesterday, we go into the Rainforest Cafe and get lunch ordered and I had to walk out and outside the Rainforest Cafe, there's like these giant mushrooms, you know, like that are artificial. I remember here I am calling Mr. Davis underneath one of these mushrooms <laughs> and explaining to him that I have to finish this vacation and he understood. He said that I'll see you Sunday PM. So Sunday morning, we had our little character breakfast. It was Winnie the Pooh. Flew back to Dallas, unpacked, got everyone set, situated, and then repacked, you know, with some more formal wear, and flew back out to Oakland. And here it was again, you know, having one of these late night meals. And, and every one of these interviews with him, each, each evening was like historic, the topics we'd hit on. But if I ever wrote about that, it would be breakfast with Winnie, dinner with Al. That was my day, you know, one day at the end of the season. But that was Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, went three days. And Bill had thought that, I, that I'd for sure taken this job, and I really hadn't, but we were discussing it in depth. And um, I probably drove 100 miles an hour all the way till I saw the falling rock. I kept ignoring the signs, you know, that said, stop, don't, and I kept driving fast because it was an opportunity. And then finally, at the, at the very end, uh, I made a good decision. You go to bed Tuesday night thinking you're taking a job. What happened? I have a Raider suit in my closet. What happens Wednesday that changes um, your mind? Bill, first, Bill calls me. He's in Jupiter, and he just said, hey, I want to talk to you not as your head coach. I want to talk to you like a father. Bill Parcells. Yeah. And, uh, and he was very, look, he was very honest with this conversation. He said, there's a number of people that you're very close with that have given you advice on this decision. You know, John Gruden had been in Oakland and he knew uh, Bill Callahan, John, a number of guys that were close to me had said, it's not the right time, you, you know. It's hard to hear that when it's a head coaching job though and you're young. And so he asked me to, to tell him what they all said and I told him and then he said, well, put me in that line with them. It's not the right job. And, and I felt like that was the first conversation we had as opposed to we really discussed the pros and cons of the job and, and the concerns about it. And then Jerry called shortly, shortly thereafter. I actually went and saw Jerry at his house. And I've said this, I said it before. Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones the owner of the Cowboys. If he's the last person you see when you're making the decision, then you're probably, uh, you're probably staying. Why? He's, he's, He's a tremendous businessman. He's got a, a great way about him. Um, someone to this day, I would say, is a close friend. And he, you know, he didn't commit or promise a job there as a head coach. Obviously, he reworked a contract, but um, I just think, look, I, and I knew this whole time for the family. Uh, we had just been there for one year in Dallas and really 
grown accustomed to it. Um, it was like the last chance to hit the brakes, and we did that on that Wednesday. So between Bill and Jerry, those guys had a lot to do with that. Uh, family. You have three siblings, uh, younger sister Molly, four years younger, an older sister Patrice, 10 years older, an older brother Tom, 11 years older. Um, so what your, uh, how'd your parents explain the gap to I, you and Molly? Well, it, the gap, they had two children and basically waited 10 years and decided to have two more. And so the unique thing about it was that... And chose, like, literally Yeah, chose. yeah. Okay. And, and so... Because they were 40 when they had... Molly. Yeah. So my older brother and sister were later in high school and out of the house in college as Molly and I were in elementary school. It was like... It wasn't like two families. It, it wasn't like that. But the time, the, the distance in age made it feel like that at times. You know, so... Tommy and Patrice were born a year apart, and then there was 10 years, and then myself and Molly. So there was, it, it was unusual. And what, you said it didn't really feel like two families, but what was the well, dynamic listen, given the they're, age they're Obviously, all through the, their high school, Molly and I were in, I'm sure, kindergarten or elementary school, and then eventually they went off to school, college. Um, when our family moved to Chicago, I was just finishing the seventh grade. Patrice had just graduated from college. Of course, Molly was in grade school. I went, my older brother stayed in the Philadelphia area because he had already kind of gotten established. Because and you were, you guys were living on the outskirts of Philadelphia before Yeah, we that. were in Newtown Square, a suburb of suburb Philly. And suburbs yeah. in the New Jersey and so shore. He so was, he was already um, working. And uh, so, yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of our growing up was Patrice going to school at Kutztown or my brother, you know, finishing school and working. And there was just a big gap. How, how did it change as you guys got older? Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't think as much about the age. I, I think that I was probably closer to Molly because we were living under the same roof for a longer period of time, and yet, um, you know, my parents didn't move a lot. They had that, they moved twice. You know, I was born in California at a young age. When I was seven, we moved from San Mateo to um, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, my dad worked in the insurance business. My mom was a, a housewife, and, uh, you know, we, they, they made a good living, and, and, of course, the move we made from Pennsylvania to Chicago uh, was a big step or a big jump, a new company for him. He commuted. You know, he was one that put a suit on every day and um, got on the bus to get on the train to go downtown to Chicago, work for CNA, and come back and do it all over again the next day. And then years later, John Rafferty, the quarterback we were talking about, would end up getting hired by CNA and living it in my bedroom at our house while I was still in college, and, and that was his first job in insurance. But that's what he did, and, and so... Um, he, he said your dad took him to the country club before listen, your dad ever even took you there. Listen, I mean, you know, when, when you leave college and you go work, your times, all of our time clocks change. So, you know, you're up earlier, you're going to bed earlier, and then periodically we'd call 
you know, we, we being the freshmen now that were seniors that were redshirted, well, John didn't stay for his, his fifth year. And I said, John, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm getting ready to go to bed. And, you know, here we got a pot of coffee going Thursday night. We're getting ready to go to Mother's. It's quarter beer. Um, he said, yeah, your dad and I had a steak uh, at the club. And, and I'm like, what? And look, we didn't belong to a country club until like his last, you know, he, it was something that he, he had received as a perk. We really, I would say, grew up in, in a middle class type of economic uh, family. And I said, you know, here's my roommate, and he's telling me about the steak he had with my father at the country club. And I'm like, man, I never had a steak with my dad at the country club. Um, but hey. it, was, it, was, uh, it was that type of relationship John and I had. Yeah, I hear you and the siblings have a great Thanksgiving celebration each year, and it's kind of the one time everybody comes well, when together you, now. So my dad passed in 1997, my first year with the Eagles, my first year in the NFL at the Senior Bowl. He had been sick for probably five or six years. Having like little strokes. Yeah, he had, he had, uh, he had a series of strokes, and, and then it was, you know, we, when you get to that stage, ultimately um, he was in a nursing home, and I think his cause of death was pneumonia. You, you know, the, you get sick enough where you can't, you know, but he had been he had been sick for quite a while, and then my mother in '02 passed, and hers was the opposite. You know, I'll I'll bet there were ten times that I was visiting my parents, thinking this is the last time I'll probably see my dad alive. You know, just and then leaving, and then you know there it was four months later. You're back visiting, and you're seeing him again in the nursing home. I'll bet that happened eight times though, where I thought this will be the last time. So it was very. It was a long or extended period of time relative to my mother, who was diagnosed. She was also in her 70s. She was diagnosed with cancer and within a month passed away. So it was very, it was very quick. But when you lose the second parent as, and look, we were all out of the house. We we're all grown up, you know, at that time. You, lo you can lose your, like, where's your home base? Where are we going to do Christmas? Or where are we going to do Thanksgiving? Or... Like, you have to take the initiative to do that. And so we've tried to do, we've tried, it's easy to center it around our football schedule and try to do it a Thanksgiving weekend if you're going to come in for a game. You know, last year was in L.A. Um, this year, I think we're home. Um, but otherwise, you, you find yourself like, you know, where was home is now, you know, home is where, you live with your mom's passing um, she knew she had cancer um, but did not yet know the severity of it um, why did you want to be the one to tell her and what did you say so what happened she had gone in for um, an angio procedure with her heart so something that was going to help her heart related and while they were doing that they noticed uh, an unusual um, reading on, on one of the scans. And sure enough, she had lung cancer. And it had, it had spread to her lymph nodes. But she was in Tennessee, and I was in New York. And she really, she said, hey, let's have Sloan Kettering look at all of these results. You know, in other words, let's make sure the best people are looking at it. I totally understood. So we were able to get all the 
the lab results, the scans, and it, it didn't take long. And the gentleman from Sloan Kettering, I remember calling, he, he called me and saying, hey, there, there's, your mother needs to stay right where she's at. There's, you know, there's nothing we can do with the conditions she's in. Um, they've diagnosed it correctly. But that was kind of like her, my, my son's up in New York, and you know, Sloan Kettering, they're going to give me, that, you know, she was holding on to that kind of maybe they'll have different information. So we played in St. Louis against the Rams. And after that game, I remember renting a car and driving to Tennessee and having to tell her, like, check on her, how you doing? And hey, I spoke to Sloan Kettering. You know, and that was kind of her, and look, they really want you to stay right where you're at. And it's kind of like, ah, oh, that was my last. So for her, and where she was at, like we could never get ahead of it. So within 30 days, we were planning for in-home care and all of a sudden it was a funeral. That's how fast it was. And it was a blessing because she only had gone through one round of chemo. I still have her checkbook right now. And you know, our parents had great penmanship, you know, back then. And her checkbook in the month of May and June, it's just perfect, perfect. July, and as soon as I get to August and September, you can start to see, it's almost like I, that log of her checkbook can give you like a great um, insight as to her health. And it was only three and a half weeks. Um, so that happened very fast, different than my dad. And she was your biggest oh, cheerleader. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, yeah. How did it affect you? I, it, it was difficult. It was difficult because it was during that year um, that was challenging professionally. And, so, so much was happening. Um, I, I think this though, I, I didn't, I, I, I felt like, we felt like, you know, we didn't lose both parents suddenly. You know, they, they lived into their 70s. Um, and and you, you were older, but you were still a young man, all things considered, to lose both parents. Yeah. Um, Look, when, when you lose your second parent, though, and, and someone brings up this word, you think of orphan. Well, at that moment, though, when you lose your second parent, you realize, and I remember sitting at the table with my siblings, and, you know, we, we were having to plan the funeral, and then, you know, they had a small house, and, and you know, basically split up and, and handle the, the, the business element of, a parent passing away because someone's got to be the executor and so I was the executor which simply meant there were tax things that you had to do you, you know, had to make sure that all of these steps were taken the furniture was distributed I mean you know things that you don't even think about but my mom was very organized it was all in files um, but there is that like loneliness of well holy cow where's home base now you know what I mean that's different and so you know, you always hope for, for anyone in your own children that happens later in their life rather than earlier in their life. And so, we, look, we were, we were grown up and it didn't make it any easier. And yet she had a way about her, like her spirit, I've said this before, she was such an upbeat, like full of energy. She would have wanted, you know, a, more, a grieving and a mourning process, but to be short and then a celebration of you know how she lived, and 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 that was that was easy to do, knowing her. 
Does that make sense? My sure. dad's personality was the opposite. Well, I want to jump between your mom and dad uh, here first with your dad. Would that, I didn't get about your dad. Everybody that I talked to said he was a really quiet guy, yet it didn't make sense to me because he also was a magician who would perform shows. So that was his hobby. Right. And that was his little outlet. You know, so periodically he'd have doves in the basement and you're like, we were that family or we had rabbits in the backyard, but they were all magic related. Um, he was, I would say, I don't, I, I don't know if I'd say quiet, but soft-spoken, um, more reserved. My mother, you know, you'd hear before you saw her. And so they, there was a good fit there, but we did, uh, we did as young kids experience Easter with a real bunny running through the living room. Or, you know, there was always something um, relative to his hobby. How responsible do you think he was for your older brother, Tom? Well, that was their little magician. thing. Okay. Yeah, that was their thing. They, um, so my, my older brother had an interest in it. Um, and I, I think they enjoyed that. I think that was important for them. Um, your dad is sitting in the stands with your older sister, Patrice, at your Eastern uh, Illinois like college football game and makes the comment to her that you're living his dream. Um, how aware were you of that at the time? Probably not as much. Um, because of the, the gap in, in children, my older brother and sister had a, a different relationship, a more, you know, more mature relationship with my parents than my younger sister and I. You know, it would be Christmas, you know, two of us would go up, the other two would stay down. You know, you're like, almost like adults. There was that division. And so even a conversation that you're referencing now, I was unaware of. Um, you know, he grew up in, in that, that Great Depression era. He, he was in World War II in the Navy right out of high school. He was young. I have pictures. He was one of five, you know, four of the boys were all in Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines during World War II. His dad died at a young age. Um, I think he was nine when his father passed. His mother died when he was 17. And, and they had, you know, they had nothing. And so it was a, man, it was a tough, when I look at pictures and, and when I hear stories about um, his life, it was, it was much different, you know, with regards to making ends meet and uh, what the family had and didn't have, considering five kids. Um, tough on you? Uh, was, no, no, was no, he, I, no. I'm saying, no, no, I mean, not tough on you. I mean, what, was he tough on you? No, no. He, he, it was, there was just an element you didn't hear a lot about. And then periodically, obviously, if his dad died when he was nine, then there's a side of your family you never met, your grandfather. Right. Or his mother at 17. Or, you know, think about your junior high school's over with, and all of a sudden you're getting drafted. You know, you're you're going to be a young gunner's mate, you know, in the Great Lakes. And the one brother's going to be in Iwo Jima, and the other one's going to be in the Army, and, and the other one's going to be in the Air Force. It, it, was a different, it was a different time. I mean, it was a special generation it, as, you, as you research it. But they, it was a, man, it was a, it was a tough, I think, upbringing for him, for their family. They, 
So they didn't have a lot, and, and so he wasn't college educated, nor was my mother. And I, don't, I would only guess that that comment he made to my older sister might have been like, he's living my dream. In other words, he's, he's going to college. Uh, I don't know if it was necessarily athletic related, okay. as opposed to he's on scholarship. You know, here he is 18, and compared to where he was at 18, they were, I mean, they were just two different lives. You know, one was, man, he was growing up fast. How did uh, your mom's presence in your life compare to that of your dad's? Entirely different. He, you know, he was more reserved. My mother, man, you know, she was that constant pat on the back, confidence, and competitive, like, you name it. Um, if it was you were second grade and you were competing for some dress-up thing, man, I remember going to school in crazy outfits, winning <laughs> first prize. Or very competitive and very uh, uh, filled with a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, you'd be at a stadium, I could hear her, at, you know, high school fields are easy, but I can remember hearing her at Kansas once when I was at Eastern. You know, Kansas had a pretty good sized stadium where my dad would just be more reserved. So he was at work and she was at home and she was raising the family. What was she like at the games? Loud, she was loud. Um, always, uh, just always optimistic though. Even, even in your worst performance or your worst defeat as a coach, Gosh, in 2000, 2000, we went down and lost to the Titans. I was the offensive coordinator of the Giants. I think we had 140 yards. Jeff Fisher was the head coach, and that was Steve McNair and um, Eddie George. They had a good team. We had a good team too, but we didn't play well in that game. And she had brought 15 ladies from, you know, from the area where they retired, which was right outside of Knoxville, to the game. And and you know, it was just one of those tough games and you're coming out to the bus and she just hugs me and you guys were great today, you'll win next week. I'm like, ah, <laughs> mom, we were awful. No, you weren't, you're great. All right, uh, another one for you. It's uh, your offensive coordinator on the Giants. It's your first game uh, back playing post 9-11 uh, and her and your sister Molly go to the game and you see her on the jumbo so this, this is this is it's classic my mother um, 9 11 we, we played the Broncos on 9 10 and flew back during the night landed in Newark um, shoot early that morning in fact the plane next to us was the plane that went down in Pittsburgh um, so it would be very normal for the coaches the next morning Tuesday now 9 11 to go back to watch film, players would go home, and our buses all went to the Giant Stadium, which is right there in East Rutherford. Um, so 9-11 comes, the following week of games are canceled, the next week we're in Kansas City, and Kansas City was gonna be the central, they were gonna have an NFL, the stadiums were all cutting live to the armed forces and the, the ceremonies leading up to the game in Kansas City. So we get there early and you know, typically you go out, the players go out for pregame, the coaches go out. And Kansas City was exciting for me because it was one of the first times, probably the first time I'd ever been there and heard so much about Arrowhead. It's a loud stadium, it's one of the hard stadiums to play. You can't hear, the snap count's gonna be paramount. And you get out there and they've got these big jumbotrons, these like oval shaped jumbotrons and I'm trying to find my mom and I look up 
and I'm looking at the jumbotron, and she is like front and center, like waving. And my little sister's next to her, and I realize that it's actually behind me, and I turn, and I, I literally spotted my mother on the jumbotron and then found, found out where she was sitting. So she would be, it would be like her to, to be spotted by the cameraman. Uh, work ethic and sacrifices and the toll that takes on All the uh, above. family. Yeah. Um, you had to miss your younger sister Molly's uh, wedding. Um, and this was, you know, I think you knew at the time that your dad wasn't going to be able to uh, make it because he was uh, already getting sick. Uh, what do you remember from the letter that you wrote, Molly? Man. Holy cow. Um, she said she still has it. Did she really? Um, I'm sure, listen, I'm sure it was, uh, it's one of the hard things about our profession. You, you, there's some things you miss that you normally would, would never miss. And you, as a coach now, you try to really be mindful of that. But um, I'm sure it was very apologetic, very um, proud of her. Um, hate that I, I can't be there. And uh, look, I, you know, Molly being the youngest, obviously, we were in high school and our parents were retired. So they were, they were a little older when they had us. And, you know, you, you go over to your friend's house and the parents were younger. And so I think that, you know, I think it was probably tough for her getting married with my dad being sick. And, you know, you, you want your family to be at the wedding. So I'm sure it was something. I, I can't recall specifically, though. Why did you feel you had to miss it? Um, I'm sure it was football related. Right. You'd uh, like just got in the, your first job or first big job yeah, or something? I, I'm sure it was. And it was something that it was like, uh, from a schedule standpoint, I, I, can't, I can't make. But I, listen, when you bring that up, though, it, it, right away I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, I'm trying to think of the letter. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, it's your hard work that has provided for a great life and lifestyle for all those uh, close to you. Um, but flip side of that, how do you see um, the hours that you have to invest take their toll on family? I, listen, I think that's always the challenge. And, and honestly, in fairness to my siblings, um, They all have their thing. My older sister taught for, you know, 30 years and retired down in Florida and has done well. My older brother uh, is finishing up working. My younger sister is in San Diego, married with two kids, and they've done well. And so, I think sometimes there's this impression that he's the breadwinner for all the, and certainly that's not the case. Yeah. But, but. And I'm talking more immediate family. The immediate yeah. family, though, there, look, there, there comes, there's, there's a lot of great things about the job. And then there are a lot of things that, that aren't good. You know, when there are times where you're changing Christmas, you know, everyone else thinks Christmas is Tuesday when it is, and, and, but Christmas at your house is Monday because of the schedule of in-season. In-season's hard. Thanksgiving, we're playing or, you know, we're coaching Christmas the same way. The summers are great. You know, that's, 
you have more time. But there, it's challenging in the fall. The time, the time away is challenging. Whenever that's been the worst during your career, um, in what way did it eat at you? Listen, I, I think it, it's, it's, it's missing just little things. So it's not the big events, it's just, man, it's the little steps that take place as your children grow. And it's easier now as they're older, but look, uh, it's, it's, that's one of the things that, it, that, that troubles you, you know, when, you, when, you, when, when there's like the first steps taken or the first word spoken or, you know what I mean? Those are, those are times where the, just the hours and the lack of sleep and the amount of time spent, it's, it's a very selfish profession at times and how, it takes from you. How, how do you reconcile, um, I mean, especially with the extraordinary success that you've had, I'd imagine they're like, that's a just internal battle uh, yeah. at times. How, how do you reconcile? The I, you know, I don't know that they're, honestly, I think it's still something that I, that I find myself still work, you know, working on and thinking about, and there's still regrets. There's still like what? Just, just how much it can consume you. And you, if you're not careful, you, you get in this and it, and, and so you just, it begins to control you more. And I think that later in this profession, I focus more on, I know there's not this utopia with balance and yet, you know what? Um, I'm gonna see him play every Friday night, regardless. And so- Your son. Yeah, my son, who's, who's Connor now, who's, who's uh, 18 and is a senior. I'm gonna make sure, Megan, you know, that that's easier to do when you're the head coach. And it's much more challenging when you're an assistant who you're working for someone. And so I, I try to be, hopefully, as mindful as that when it comes to a birth, when it comes to a wedding, when it comes to all of those things, that uh, those are important. And I think ultimately, I, I, uh, it comes up with players all the time, and I, I think that um, I think that's one of the things that you try to work on more is is finding a, a better balance, a, you know, one that that can still su sustain success, but also at home. Uh, so you thought you were working really hard in college, and then you get to the NFL and realize the demands are so much greater. Um, in what ways? Well, the immediate change was just getting to a place like Philadelphia, and all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with pro quarterbacks that have been in the NFL for three or four years, and a guy like John Gruden and a very talented staff, and you realize it, that you have to, in order to teach, you have to become, at some point, the expert. And so there was that immediate, that was, the, that was a step where, man, for a period of about six months, um, you ever seen The Firm? Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like Tom Cruise on The Firm. You're just, every time you went home, you're, my hair, you were just lack of sleep, trying to get caught up at work. Um, Megan was being born, she had colic. You know, it, it, it was, it was um, hectic. And, but to become, to catch, to catch up with everyone else in the room so that you weren't as this, as one of the young assistants, you know, constantly listening to 
a language you didn't understand. How often did you used to sleep at the office? A lot, a lot in New York. Um, a lot in New York at the Meadowlands. They had a, there was a, a perfect couch. Um, <laughs> and, and why? Well, it, when, you, when you looked at a half an hour home and a half an hour in the morning, that equaled an hour, you know, do you want four hours or five hours? You know, it was just the-, the uh, Of sleep. Yeah, in other words, it, and it happens, it'll happen now, only we have a sleep room. You know, and so for a coach that's got a half an hour commute both ways on two nights of the week, that hour can, can be important. Will you still ever sleep periodically? Um, my distance isn't as long, I'm 20 minutes. Whereas, I, you know, it, with each job, there's a commute change. Here, it's not as bad. Yeah, and what's the... But we build a sleep room. We've right. got this fancy, like, high-tech sleep room. I'll show it to you, you'll like it. Oh, but, but what, like, um, what about the schedule makes it um, that bad that you, you Wednesdays feel... and Thursdays are long nights for us and can they be more efficient i suppose but they're long because there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we can't do prior to those two nights that have to get done and so look on a wednesday night there might be we're out by 11 that's great but there have been some 230. and then when does the day start the next day typically 6 7 you know you know you're prepping for the meetings so they're Look, this is, this is the assistant coach, and obviously the schedule for the head coach is similar because I'm in those meetings, and yet the, those guys have a lot of stuff to do when, when we break the meeting. So um, we try not to have too many of those. We had too many a year ago. Um, you did? Yeah, and yet we've had real, a lot of success. What's the sleep-work schedule uh, like now? Well, we, we have, we're just starting the season, Graham, so we haven't... <laughs> not, I mean, the, set New Year's resolutions. <laughs> That's right where we're at right now. And what's the, what's the six, six hours during you know the hard nights? Th that's the goal. The goal or is six hours of sleep. Our, our specialist in Detroit said we still need eight. Obviously, we we need eight. But what do you typically end up getting? Wednesday, Thursday nights would be you know four, four or five hours. I, and I think that's very common. I, I'm not. Right. I, I I don't want it to sound like. I, I think there's certain things that you have to get done that are challenging, and I'm well aware that, man, the research has shown that you're not at your best. And so it, it's finding that, you know, banking sleep, you know, because as the week progresses towards game day, closer to the game, you're, you're finished with, you can, you're, you're sleeping more on Friday, you're sleeping more on Saturday, you're sleeping more on Sunday, Monday, and then it's, it's, it's that, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, those are the, the nights. How does it affect uh, diet and exercise in season? It can. Um, that's usually kind of a cyclical thing, depending on the coaches. You know, there's 20-some 20, 20 coaches. I mean, for, for you. Um, it can. Look, I, I think the energy element of, of getting a sweat in, you know, at least every other day or three times a week is significant. And, uh, because you killed it when you were out there was, for the yeah, season. Man, there you was got a three-year period and, where, yeah, yeah that, you had plenty of time. And yeah. so, um, look, I, I think that's, that's part of the balance. That's uh, part of the balance. Uh, so your interview with the Saints uh, for the head coaching job, um, what were your initial impressions of New Orleans as a city when you land for the first time? I had no and, interest. I, and don't get me wrong. Look, all of us, I wasn't here for Katrina. I, I was in Dallas. 
But forget Katrina. New Orleans was that place. I've only, I'd only been twice where it was great to visit, but it wasn't where you wanted to go move to and raise a family. I, I, it, it, at least it wasn't for me or for us. And Katrina happened in right about now. In fact, today or yesterday was 13 years ago. I mean, it was just this time of the year, all right, August. We were in Dallas. And I know the Saints then relocated to San Antonio. And so it was very, it was right after that season. It's now January of 06. And I'd met Mickey briefly down in San Antonio on like a, an overback. It wasn't even an interview. It was a chance to have dinner. Mickey Loomis. Mickey Loomis, Saints our general manager. manager. And then I was flying to uh, Green Bay for a formal interview. And that was the job. You know, I'm from Chicago. There's a tradition there. It's the Packers. Yeah, sure. it's the Packers. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I'd interviewed in Green Bay and then come back home and now was in New Orleans for this interview. And when I tell you, now it was post-Katrina, so it's January, Katrina was August, but you could count on one hand, you know, how many hotels and restaurants were open. And when I landed at the airport, I'll bet getting off the plane all the way to baggage claim, I saw two people. Uh, it was like a ghost town. And I think as, as, as a region, as a country, I think there was more concern as to just the recovery of the city than more than the team or the, you follow me? Mm -hmm. I think there were cons the questions surrounding this area post-Katrina were with education, with uh, hospitals, with those were all unanswered problems. And so the idea of coming here and bringing a staff here, trying to bring a staff here, and make no mistake about it, it was a hard place to bring a staff before Katrina. It wasn't looked upon as a, you know, it was one of the, the five or six cellar dwellers. Because the Saints historically Period. were laughing stock of the league. You remember well, the paper bags teams, over the head. It was just and, one of those teams yeah. that didn't have any tradition. Um, and don't take that the wrong way. But, but it, it didn't. And... They had made a lot of mistakes. And look, regionally, it wasn't appealing to a lot of people. It, you know, if now if you're from down here, I think it was appealing. But for look, there are a lot of guys that I couldn't hire because they just didn't want their kids going to school down here. Now, I'm not, that's just the truth. And so now you put that, you know, three months removed from Katrina. And so it was one of those interviews where, man, I, I really enjoyed my time with Mickey. And right away we began, you know, looking at the facilities. But have you ever been somewhere kind of checked out? That was me. I was looking at my cell phone. Like, <laughs> I love Mickey, but this is, wish him well with this thing. You know, it was that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What did he say about the task at hand? He, he was very open and honest. Everyone was just about, hey, here are our challenges. It, it, you know, the, you couldn't possibly, like, take a different route to work and, and say it's, it, it, was, it was known, you know, that there were a number of questions. And so we saw them. We saw the Lower Ninth Ward. We saw, well, you didn't have to drive to the Lower Ninth Ward at that time. It, it, you, you just saw it, blue roofs, temporary roofs throughout. Like when your plane landed, 85% of the roofs in the area were blue tarp. And, uh, so it was, it was in rough shape, and it, it, so there was, 
look, I wanted to be a head coach, but not that bad, <laughs> right? So you're, you're kind of checked out as he's telling you about all the problems or the task at hand. Um, how quickly did that change? Well, it changed. Look, that evening I had gotten a message. Um, Ted Thompson from Green Bay, who had been their general manager and interviewed uh, me along with their staff, had left this voicemail that, man, they went in another direction. And they hired Mike McCarthy, who's still there, um, and has done a great job. And I remember being in the hotel, and I remember throwing my phone into the pillow. Like, you got to be kidding me. I'd not, I'd not interviewed for a job and never gotten it. You know, it was the first time where it was no. And, and now I'm sitting here at this place and I'm like, so I just remember, I remember that feeling like, hey, now I'm kind of pissed thinking Mickey knew about this the whole time, you know, did he know? In other words, he's been so upbeat and I've been looking at him, ignoring him. Did he just know that, that they were gonna offer this job to someone else? So. Do you think he did? I think he did. <laughs> you do? You ever asked him? <laughs> yeah. I think, he, I think he had an idea how the Green Bay thing was going to go. And, and I didn't. I mean, I honestly thought, that, and so that's why I, I as, as he talked about things, I was just, excuse me, you know, just not really paying attention. Yeah. So we had dinner that night. I went home. I remember discussing it at, at length and, and really, man, this was um, a big decision and... Uh, I was going to go to Buffalo next for another interview and then ended up taking this job. Um, describe the hotel you were supposed to live in when you first came to New Orleans. One of the things that I think is important in building a culture that I was exposed to at a young age, whether it was in Philadelphia, New York, and Dallas, is there's a certain way that you've got, to, if you want to become one of those top places, then, then you've got to pay attention to every detail. And so, look, the challenge with that after Katrina was finding a hotel that, that was nice enough. I'm talking about the coaches that we're interviewing have to spend the night somewhere, and it has to be somewhere nice. And the first place we stay when we're getting together and we're bringing our staff, I can't even remember the name of it, it's unimportant, but you go to hang your, coats up in the closet and the door just kind of falls off and the you know Gary said uh, one of our assistants Gary Gibbs sets a wake-up alarm for seven it doesn't go off and the lady at the front desk says well that happens sometimes you know <laughs> and it kept it, it it had gotten to where everything that was challenged or every challenge that we had and everything that went wrong Katrina kept coming up as as a reason and I'm sure I'm sure for a lot of those problems it was and yet we just had this whole thing as a young staff that we were not going to be allowed to say the k-word we, we we weren't so look if we were going to get beat it wasn't going to be because of katrina but, but i didn't you know but we weren't going to allow anyone in the football operations to explain why they couldn't get their job done and use katrina what do you remember from your family's first visit and having to get medicine from the pharmacy? It was awful. You know, it was two hours waiting for, I mean, some, a simple prescription of moxicillin for an ear infection and then only getting half a dose. It, 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 look, it was, it was uh, not normal.
it, it was not normal. What did your family think when they were here for the Where first we, time? What are we doing? For good reason. How, um, how did you address their objections? Well, look, it, it was, it was, um, I don't know specifically, it was, you know, you're working hard, hey, finding the right house, that, all those things were difficult. It, that initial staff and that initial team, it wasn't what the normal NFL template was, and it certainly wasn't in regards to where you lived. And um, so I, Listen, we were all, as coaches, we were all swimming a little bit, just trying to get our family settled in, in a place where they were comfortable. And speaking of putting the team and coaching staff together, you get a call uh, from Reggie Bush's representative uh, yeah. before you draft him. What was said well, on that conversation? That conversation was, so in 2006, our first draft, we've got the second pick in each round. That's based on the record the team had in 05. All right, so they were they had won three games. You get the second pick, and we had the second pick, and um, it probably was going to be, possibly was going to be used on a quarterback. Only we were able to sign Drew Brees. Um, February, March, he became available. So now we focus more on the players, and I think the expectation with that pick was going to be someone, one of two or three players. The Texans were going to select Reggie Bush first. He was the Heisman Trophy winner. And then it was who the Saints were going to take. But the night before the draft, the Texans chose Mario Williams, a real good football player. But that changed things very quickly, unexpectedly, honestly. Nobody thought it was going to no, happen. I think the Reggie late, Bush thought he was every, going to go number one. I think yeah. everyone felt that. And, yeah. and look, the draft never ceases to amaze you, so you prepare accordingly. And now, you know, we're back in the office the next day, and look, we got a handful of older scouts talking about trading the pick. We weren't going to do that. But there's, you know, um, we had an opportunity to draft a real good player. And a player that we had a vision for, I had a vision for, and a player that was going to help us win a Super Bowl. But at that time, someone that was going to be different than Deuce McAllister and yet effective. So. The call. The call. So Mickey Loomis, our general manager, is talking to. So Reggie's got an agent, Joel Siegel, who does a great job, but he's got a marketing agent, Mike Ornstein. And obviously, when you go from what looked like the prospects of, uh, of a good market in Houston, and then at the last minute, you know, when you're the marketing agent, you're, you're thinking about is there enough money? And, and quite honestly, the region. Uh, is a poor region relative to some of the other bigger markets. And so Mike was trying to, Ornstein was trying to orchestrate a trade or, or at least talk to the Jets. Anybody would listen. And again, this is my first draft and Mickey's like, well, coach isn't going to be interested in, in making a trade. You know, we're going to, I know he wants to stick here at the, in, so Mike's like, let me talk to him. And, you know, and I had never met him, and he's on the phone, real condescending. And you have to know Mike now. He's someone that I've grown to know. But holy cow, obnoxious. And this kid doesn't want to come there and play. Coach, I'm sure you guys are building something special, but don't draft him. He doesn't want to come. You know, he's, if 
figure out a way to trade him. And I remember just listening to this rhetoric and then finally just saying, you know, I, I didn't even say Mike, I just said, hey, Mike. No, it was, hey, Mike, F you, and then just hung up. So the first three words I ever said to him, and we drafted him the next day. And, uh, but that was his love language. Mike understood that, and it was like, hey, you're going there. First game back at the Superdome after the team had been playing away for the year post-Katrina, uh, that September game, uh, take me from waking up that morning to when you went to bed that night. Um, Look, it was, it, was a, it was an important game. It was an important game because both teams were 2-0. and Obviously, there's going to be more to this game. But we kept stressing that, look, it's important we get a chance to go 3-0. and Now, obviously, it's the first game returning to the Superdome post-Katrina. Um, our training camp was away because the sta stadium wasn't ready. Our two home preseason games were played in Shreveport and uh, Jackson because the stadium wasn't ready. And the start of the schedule was in Cleveland, in Green Bay, while the stadium. So we, were, we hadn't played at home. So not only was it the return for a regular season game, it was the first time, and 50% of our team and coaching staff, more than that, were all new. It's the first time this whole cast a character, you know, it's the first time all of us were going to have a chance to pull into the stadium and play a home game. It was finished now. And so that was going to be emotional. So we decided to take the team there Friday or Thursday night and have a night practice and kind of go through the introduction, all the Monday night football, all the crowd noise. Like we try to simulate ahead of time what it's going to be like. And look, that was, a, that was an important practice for us. And nonetheless, here it came, it was Monday night. And when you play a night game, it's a long, it's a long wait. So, you know, getting up, as you were referencing, you know, you, you have your meetings, but there isn't much on television Mondays and you, you're finally heading over to the stadium. So it was much, it was much bigger than any one of us had, had bargained for or thought we were going to get when we came here. You know, it was it was significant, that game for the more region. Than, more than you were even expecting leading absolutely. up to it? Okay. Ab absolutely. It, it, we knew it was going to be a big night. And once again, it got to this theme, though. It's only going to be really a special night if you win it. You know, there are these big moments, but too often what was being celebrated wasn't in the end a victory here. In other words, it was a big game, but it wasn't, this had to be a victory. This had to be a win. This had to be, we had to get to three and oh, or all the other nostalgic stuff, you know, the Katrina stuff that would be remembered forever. But the, but the game needed, we needed to win it. You know, we needed to play well. And, but it was definitely different than even we expected. I think, I, I think, I would speak for anyone. I don't think any one of us, as much as we knew how significant that game was going to be, could have really imagined what it felt like to be in that stadium that night. The moment from that game that most sticks out to you is what? Gleason's punt, you know, blocks the punt early in the game. Um, we had a block in, we had an eight-man rush in. <clears throat> John Bonamago, our special teams coordinator, at the time, I don't think our plan was to rush the punter early, but we did. 
In fact, it was the first time they were punting. Um, it was the loudest I can ever recall a stadium sounding, honestly. And we've been, you know, obviously in some loud stadiums. Uh, Bounty Gate. Uh, I'm sure your favorite topic to talk about. Um, you said uh, around that time, uh, quote, it was frustrating at times to sit back and hear a lot of things that have been painted in a certain way that you know aren't true. Um, like what? There were so many. One of the things that we've seen, and in, in it's just the truth, our, our league's no different than a, um, a large political party. They're experts at pushing their message through the media. We've seen it come up in, in other decisions relating to player penalties and look, it was in full force, it meaning the league, the machine, in pushing their message out early. And, and look, I'm thankful, we're thankful. It didn't affect me, but Paul Tagliabue, who's probably one of the smartest men in the room, you know, the former commissioner, when, when Roger recused himself, which was the right decision, when Paul had a chance to sit in and gather all the information, Mary Jo had come to her conclusions, you know, the, the independent quote unquote team. When Paul had a chance to look at it all, you know, he, 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 he was smart enough to see it for what it was and our players were. Uh, Which was what? They basically were initially penalized and they were, they were vindicated. They, they, they were, Paul, found in favor of the, the team and the players. And look, that was a hard year being away, and yet I was happy that our play, when Paul did that, I think the, the average fan looked and said, wait a minute, and the sports writer said, wait a minute. And I think it was the first time, without getting into every specific writer, that they began to realize that, man, we've just been getting fed and, and delivering and delivering. And they began in the next, Eight years they were going to get burned. Not only in that, they were going to get burned with Ray Rice. They were going to get burned with Tom Brady. And that's the unfortunate side of our where we've gone as a league. And, and, and I think it's gotten better. But Paul Tagliabue was, uh, was very instrumental in, in looking at this for what it was. And the media's coverage of it infuriated you. Yeah, right? and yet... You had to get over that. It was a, the first month of that suspension was difficult, and I would say, you know, the next nine, ten months, you know, started coaching my son's team. The the the, the, the penalty was was crazy. You can't talk to anybody in the league. You can't talk to any coach. You can't talk to any player. Anybody in the league. If you do, you have to report to Ray Anderson. Um, there were all these. You know, aside from a salary, whatever your salary was, which was quite a bit of money, but the majority of your salary was, it was four, six but, million dollars. But, and, right. and, so, and I want to ask you about that too. But like, what before that? What do you feel like looking back? You did wrong. Well, listen. I, obviously, the, the rhetoric involved because we had gotten we had had this discussion with the league after that uh, 09 season, and look, as a head coach, you're responsible for your staff. And when you have one outlying coach that uh, is a little bit overzealous, you know, you're responsible for that. 
That all being said, there's a difference between, man, this bravado talk and what's happening on the field. And so we tried so many different avenues. Hey, there was a group that did a study from 2009 through 2011, which was when Bounty basically was decided on. 2009, 2011, the Saints were the, the third safest team to play defensively. In other words, based on injury data. And so this was pre-concussion. This was pre the league settling a lawsuit. This was, there was, and it wasn't until a few years after that, you know, I remember seeing the movie with my son and, and we walked out and I said, you remember the whole bounty thing? And we talked about it trying to, I said, look, a lot of it was getting ready for this. And when, when the NFL investigation comes out and said, or, and found that you initially lied when asked about the existence of it and then instructed your, I guess, defensive assistants to lie, um, what was your reaction? It was brutal. It was such a rig, it, I can't even begin to tell you. The meetings themselves, um, the information, what they pushed, you know, emails that you received. No, I was, you know, so it was just a, it was something that, man, it was going. They, when we went into our first meeting in New York, they had a whole, shoot, they flew back on the plane with us to visit with Mr. Benson. They already had a direction they were going. The key was the more and more people looked at it and the more and more people looked at where the information came from. You know, the disgruntled Saints employee who happened to miss two weeks of work and never reported to any one of us where he was, all right, on two different occasions that we knew we were firing after the season, who was a quality, the disgruntled employee who happens to work for the league now, like just got hired last year. And I happen, you know, we get wind from former league employees saying that this was quit, this was a deal done. So you, you, you learn, you build up, uh, it's a business, we're in this, and we understand it can be that way, but but I think that bitterness left, and, and it may sound bitter now, but that bitterness left, you, you can't, you can't, man, that happened during 11, 12, I was out, 13, 14, sure, it's 18 now. And, and I feel like the relationships I have with the media uh, are good and- And I mean, it's easier to reflect on it years it's later. It's much too. easier to yeah. reflect on it years later, but what has allowed us, what, it, what it's made it easier for us to reflect on is it was the first of four botched league investigations. It was the first time that our league and our writers and our media that cover the league saw something that was handled really incorrectly by the commissioner. It's, 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 it's that simple. And to have Tagliabu come in at the end and say, this was wrong. Now, we don't have a union. So I was suspended, but fortunately for our players, they were vindica vindicated. And then they're, it's one of the things that, that frustrate, frustrates you because look, when you, when you try to push things in a direction rather than just pay attention to all the facts and all the truths. And 
that was disappointing. There was there was a prominent. I was reading about this the other night. There was a prominent uh, football writer at the time, though, who wrote a negative article about you and said something to the effect of, "How can you know Sean Payton, who's micromanager in coaching, how would not, he not know about how, any how would of he this? not know that Absolutely. one of his coordinators the night before games meeting with half the team uh, uh, about that, this? Listen, he's meeting with the defense. No, and and make no mistake about it, it wasn't." It wasn't us saying, hey, this thing didn't, it was the idea that it continued for three years. In other words, look, our league's had a history where when you get into the postseason, you're playing and, well, you're, you're playing, you think you're playing hard, you're playing hard to begin with. It wasn't injure and get this, it was, hey, this is what we need to do to be successful and obviously the rhetoric and it's still used by Greg today. He's in Cleveland. Just watch Hard Knocks. I mean, it's crazy. To, to, to what extent do you think you guys were also punished for uh, doing something that was just pervasive in the culture of the NFL at the time? It was pre-concussion. This was, listen, this was, this was Rogers' chance to Make a, you know, it was an important decision, and yet it was handled all wrong. I think that if you read Tagliabue's findings, he in there stated, look, typically when we go a direction where this becomes a point of emphasis in the offseason, there's, there's a penalty, whatever that is, and we move on, and then teams are on alert. But what, what happened with our penalty was unprecedented. It was, um, it was foolish. The first big meeting you had with Commissioner Goodell, um, set the scene, take me into the room. Well, it wasn't directly was with asking. Roger. Roger had two security guys that met with Mickey and I. Both of them sat in a room and, and began asking questions. And very quickly in the process, you kind of saw where it was going. Um, Tried to, you know, answered their questions, waited, and then met with the commissioner. Um, what was talked about in that meeting? It was brief. Um, I, I had a contract that was voided by the league because of some language in it, and so that really put the Saints in a tough position because basically if the contract was voided, then, then I wasn't working on a contract. And it was like if, if Mickey, the general uh, manager, leaves, no you could leave. If he was acting general yeah. manager, then I, yeah. I would be able to. So it, there was a reason for that. And, well, Roger and the league didn't want that. Um, so it, we had to do another contract. But in the meantime, I wasn't under. So that topic came up that seemed to upset Roger. Um, Why? Well, the focus was still bounty. Right. But that topic came up. And it was a real topic that had nothing to do with Bounty, and it was something that I think was troublesome. It was, it was upsetting to him that I brought it up. Like, because we were waiting on some conclusion with, is, you know, is the contract approved? Right. But anyway, um, look, it, it, was, it was eye-opening. I would, I would not have handled it the same way. I would have had, represent, I would have had an attorney with me. That was foolish to go into those meetings and and I would have had someone, and the Saints, we knew better too. We, I think, the, look, we've done a lot of things well, but 
as an organization, we didn't handle that investigation very well at all. Uh, you said we the, handled it poorly. The, the first five or six weeks uh, of that, um, you've said before that you were just furious um, <laughs> about like what specifically? Well, I think the idea that you might be you might miss two games. You might be missing three games that, you know, the most the commissioner can fine you is $500,000. It's probably going to be this, this, and this. And then I remember when Mickey called and said, look, they just gave us, a, you know, the, and I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, you're suspended a year. And I was like, a year? And and the players are suspended this long, and Joe Vitz suspended the, you know, they went through the, the findings. Um, what was frustrating is just knowing how they arrived at the decision. And it was one of the, look, it's one of the weaknesses of our commissioner in that there's a lot of things he does well, but one of the weaknesses is there's too much emotion. And when the penalties came down, it was just, it was unprecedented. I mean, it was, there was, nothing like it and when you really dug into what it was that was purported or reported it, it, it was like Paul had found what was your lowest point during those first I think five the to early stage the early portion of it man that was that was hard to, I mean it was hard to hear you know someone with the rhetoric that this is what your team over three years has been doing and feeding it to Peter King and feeding it to all these different prominent writers that, listen, all of them to a man, you know, went in a certain direction. And when all that dust settled, though, it was like, man, I was just, I was really glad for our players. Because Paul Tagliabue's been a successful commissioner and a sharp guy. And so when he was able to come in and look at it and, and dig through all of the dust and see it for what it was, it didn't, it didn't impact me directly, but man, it did. It did. Your sister uh, said she knew like not to contact you for the first couple months you were out. Um, why? I probably was just um, man. I, I was just trying to gather. You know, when you when you go through a penalty or a suspension, mm -hmm. we do this once in a while with our players. You know, they're gone for four weeks, or they're gone for two weeks. Or, but when it's a year. When you say a year and you're not able to talk to any coach, you're not able to talk to any other player, you're not able to, and you know that the league office actually contacted two other owners to talk to Mr. Benson about finding a way to have you fired. Like they are trying to break you. And that's the truth. And so that's when you get, like you find a place different than where you've ever been, like in regards to your mental, your physical fitness, like it's not happening. D d depressed? No, 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 not at all. The opposite, like you find a place to compete and to battle and hey, I'm gonna, f 
man, I've got to, I've got to direct this energy somewhere. You know what I mean? I've got to, I've got to focus on, you know, help coaching this team, get in shape. You know, it's, it's like they're not going to, they're not going to break you. Why do you think they wanted you fired? I know that, well, I just know that the late Mr. Benson, to his credit, came to me and said, I, I had just gotten two calls from two other league owners, and I knew that, I knew that came from the league office. So, look, at the end of the day, that would have handled their problem, at least in their eyes. Um, so that well, took a little digging, though, to make sure to make sure that, that you know, all those specifics. Because I remember getting back that year, being at the owners' meetings. We had just finished that season. And um, typically, you have a dinner with your, with your team staff. Mr. Benson was fantastic, and Mrs. B, and our ownership group. And I remember, you know, the other tables were surrounding the lawn, and I remember having a chance to go over to it would be normal to go over and say hello to another owner and another team and, and having a chance to go over and say hello to the one owner and thanking him for, for all the support, you know, in a, in a, in a way where he looked and, and, and then said, you're welcome, and then finding the other owner and doing the same thing, and it just felt good to sit back down. They, they knew you knew. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think of Goodell today? I think he's... Listen, I think he's, he's improved. Um, there's a lot of things he's done well. He was very, very, uh, very smart with regards to league business. He's made a lot of money for our, our, uh, uh, our league, and we've all benefited from that. Relative to the TV contracts, he's, he's been outstanding. Um, there's, there's some areas that I think he's, he's begun to, hopefully he's begun to, look at and improved on. I think one of the tough things he's had trouble doing is arriving at consistent decisions. And I think that, look, both he and, and our union president, D. Smith, that's always going to be a challenging relationship, but it has to be better than the current relationship. Because right now, it's not, it's not a good relationship. And look, that falls on both Roger and D. One more for you, and then I'll move on. Yeah. Um, what about Greg Williams? Um, I don't think much about him, really. I mean, you know, in other words, I, when I say this, and if you'd asked me that question in 13 or 14, um, I know he's still coaching, and, you know, you just uh, you move on from it. All right, so when uh, you're, you're out, you, as you mentioned, transition your energy to uh, coaching uh, your son's uh, sixth-grade team, and to your credit, um, you could have been, you know, broadcasting on TV if you wanted, but you no, that instead... was that was put to a halt though. See, oh, was, okay. It, and listen, you'll have, you'll find this hard to believe. Fox, CBS, NBC, memo from the league office that hey, um, we don't want him doing any weekend work. And. I know that was the case because I was ready to do a small skit with Fox, mm -hmm. and that disappeared, which was fine.
But that was the uh, that was the unique thing about this time, was it was like wow. This is running a lot like deeper than you could ever envision, and you're getting tested here. Does that make sense? Like you were getting tested, and Connor's team though practiced Tuesday, Thursday. We played Saturday, and. Uh, when the season ended, we had a real good year, real good season. I remember feeling like, look, it was, it was the end of the year. I remember feeling like I needed them, that group of sixth graders, more than they ever needed me. Really? Yeah, absolutely. How so? Just in, in, a, in, a, in a place to go, and a place to teach, and a place to coach, and a, a new focus to direct energy and attention and, um, you know, you're coaching, you know, you have a playbook, you're at Kinko's, you're putting together a game plan for sixth graders and you're still teaching. But how important, that was important for me. In other words, not just with my son, but it, it's something that took me away from New York, from the Saints, from the NFL, from, you know, all the things that, that, uh, that was causing you angst. You just couldn't, you couldn't live 12 months like that. You, you, you know what I mean? You had to move on from it. And so that brought a new challenge. And then, you know, working out and training, rehabbing, I was getting over an injury and then getting into CrossFit, all those things. But you were right, the first week, the first month, five weeks were, were angry, bitter, and then after that, it, it shifted. It shifted more to almost like a driven, like in a in a in a different place. Like holy cow, like you against the world, kind of. Just not not against the world at all. It's just we're going to be we're going to come back stronger. So you were the offensive coordinator for your son's then sixth yep. grade uh, team. Fun. Absolutely. Okay. Winning, winning, winning was fun, and that, you know, look, we had hadn't won a lot of games, and that that year, you know. All these kids are seniors now, right. including my son. So, you know, to go back this year, I'm going to, you know, you see all these kids that you, you were just involved in coaching for six months and to see how they've matured and grown up, obviously from sixth grade to 12th grade, it's, it's a, a big change. But um, yeah, absolutely it is. When you win a game and, and they're excited and look, you're back to cutting oranges and pouring Gatorade and you're really in that organic on the field, how you remembered it to be when you started. And that was important. It was a little bit symbolic in that it was like full circle of what you just experienced, the worst part of the pinnacle of the NFL. And, and here I was on the other end, cutting oranges, and, and it didn't matter that we weren't, weren't making any money or any of that. It was enjoying football. Explain how you got Bill Parcells to help with the sixth grade We had, we had a tough team we were playing. Um, man, I'd never really spent a lot of time defending this, this single wing and... Which was apparently a scheme that used to be ran back yeah, in the day absolutely. in the NFL. Yeah. Absolutely. And there were, look, there's a group of coaches that followed it. And, and again, it's youth football. And but there were there were six seven people I could talk to. During, you know, Bill wasn't with a team, and yeah. you know there were close friends of mine that weren't with a team that I could visit with. Um, 
But we had lost to this team pretty significantly in the first game. It was one of our first losses. And now here it was, we're playing them in the Super Bowl. <coughs> so it's the final game for youth football. And I called Bill up and I'm like, man, coach, single wing. He's like, you got to penetrate the gaps. <laughs> he gave me three things. I'm writing them down. How do they, how do they align the guard? You know, he's asking me these questions. I'm looking at this, like, I'm looking at this blurry DVD that a parent's taken. For the orange porcupines. It was the orange, yeah, Springtown orange porcupines. And we were the Liberty Warriors. And it was at Springtown Orange. And listen, I called Gruden up as well. We had uh, put a, a, a few things in. And ultimately, the most important thing for us in that game was to play more physical and play tough. And you know, when you're, when you're right at that age in sixth grade, you have kids that'll tap out, get a little emotional, and they'll, they'll get a little, not necessarily hurt, but maybe afraid. And um, we talked a lot about the school we were playing, the school we were, and, and we didn't win the game, but it was a much better game or a much closer game. And they pulled away and beat us, but we didn't have anybody tap out. And, uh, and the best thing about it, when the game ended, both teams gathered in the one end zone. And this team for us had become like the, like the Soviet Union. Like, you know, they were the, and when their helmets were off, our kids realized they were kids just like themselves. They, they were eating hot dogs eating Gatorades, you know, they handed the trophies out. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty impressive. What did you say to both of the teams? I, I didn't, listen, I was an assistant, you know, and I, Brendan, our head coach, and their head coach spoke, and I uh, had a chance to, you know, talk briefly with some of our players, and, and most importantly, Connor, but it was, uh, it was a good season. It's a good year. Uh, the NFL Super Bowl the Saints championship. Uh, describe your most vivid memory from the night you won. Oh, there's so many. Um, look, the emotions of playing in a game like that. Here's what you, you forget. It's a night game. So you probably eat at um, 1 o'clock. Players, coaches, everyone. And you get on buses. It's such a long hurry up and wait type moment. You finally get to the game and then there's a long halftime. And by the time it's over and you're finished with the media and you're, you're heading to, it's the only game you play where you're not in the locker room with your team afterwards, you know, where you're not like saying the Lord's Prayer and, and having two minutes to talk. It's the only game. Normally you would gather everyone up and you'd, you, you know, you'd, you'd talk, but that game, when it ends, you're kind of thinned out, and then you're pulled in a few different directions. There's a presentation out in the field. And so one by one, you end up back in the locker room, and you all end up back on the buses. But it's a little um, less organized. And I do remember it being, call it 10, I don't know what time. By the time we were finally on the buses driving, I just remember where you just wanted that bus ride to be for a while. You're tired. It's hard to believe that you're not going to play anymore. There's a little of that that takes place when you, when you have, you know, that our, our sport is so seasonal. When the season ends, it's like that's the time you catch a cold because now you're on a different schedule and you're, you know, and then you're into 
your evaluation phase and your own team, personnel, draft, and then you get into your spring, there's like three elements to our season that are all entirely different. And when you're six months with one element and then it's like the week it's changing, well, that, that meant certainly after the Super Bowl, it's changing. Right after that, you know, the next week we're going to be, you know, going, getting ready to go to the combine and look at next year's. There's that analogy, you chase this chicken and you chase and you chase it maybe for quite a while in your career. You catch it and you're like, ah, and then they say, well, put it down. You got to start chasing it again. <laughs> that's, and that's true. That's true. And so we're chasing again. How well do you remember being in the suite with your family uh, post-championship or post-victory? Not in the suite. They, they were in the suite, but finding them on the field was a challenge. Okay. Because, look, everyone gradually makes their way to the field, and it's, it's like a free-for-all when the game ends. And so you're trying to sort through the people, and, and everyone's trying to find those, those people closest to them. And I've been on the other side. When you lose that game in New York, you know, you're kind of getting shooed off the field, literally. And, you know, the ropes go up, and then the confetti's coming down, and, and the family members, but shoot, the first person that, that I remember seeing and hugging was Kim Kardashian and her mother. <laughs> they were there with Reggie, and, and I'm like, I'm trying to find, you know, Beth and the children. It, it, that's just, it, it took a while, but then, you know, it's, listen, those are good problems. You just made the headline for the digital clip. First yeah, person no, I that, that's the truth, though, and, and it's, um, all these, you know, there's there's a there's the first circle, your players, your coaches, your the, the families and the, the closest friends. They all eventually get to see each other on on weekends at home games and away games. So, look, this year will be no different. When we start this season, there'll be a group of new family members that meet for the first time. On you know, parents of rookie players that meet parents of and coaches' families and each team, aside from the actual players and coaches. There's an external part of, man, this is very important to a lot of people and not just to the immediate people. Was the satisfaction having worked your whole career to guide an NFL franchise to that point and you just won it having been all over the country, all over the world, uh, the hours you put in, uh, did it compare to what you expected? Yeah, I would say it's, I've told our players this, it's a hundred times greater than what you could ever expect. Like if I was trying to describe to you, Graham, you have no idea. Like, you have no idea. And, but part of it is the enjoyment. Um, it's not, it's not the actual game it's, it's this journey throughout with a good team. That that's what was depressing about the ride home after the game is like this thing, this thing's stopping. Like I know we just won the final game, but you're kind of like, let's play four more. I, you know, in other words, I don't, none of us want to stop feeling how we've been feeling just playing football. And so I think what's missed most is not the actual end of game or certainly not the ceremony or any of 
What's missed most is the process, you know, the practice again on Wednesday, you know, the players in the locker room, the meetings, the, uh, all those things I think are what you miss from a great team. And from the high of highs to the low of lows, yeah. the, the the Minneapolis miracle, yeah, as absolutely. it's called, you were talking about, you know, not wanting to uh, stop preparing after the season's yeah. over. And after you lose to the Vikings, you know, at the end of the, what, 2017-18 uh, uh, season, um, you still prepare for the next two well, days for what would have been your next opponent, even though your season was over, at least as I understand it. Correct. Uh, it, look, why? There's a day or two where, where you're going to get on to evaluations, and yet you, you just you had a difficult loss. And, you know, every once in a while you're miserable, and you, before you – recover from being miserable, you want to get more miserable? <laughs> yeah, sure. Kind of. To some degree. Yeah. So you're upset. It's frustrating. All right, let me put this tape on of who we would have played and, and be like, ah, we could have done. Regardless, in fairness to Philadelphia or not, just in your own mind, beginning to get on to what would have been the next game and feeling like we would have had a good game plan and, for the and is this at the office or just like with a bottle office, or just, a can of beer at this home is at the like, office, well, not with not with like strangers over. looking okay. in saying is yeah. he all right or anything yeah. it was really you, you're you're in that schedule and you, you you're you know that you got player meetings coming up you got exit interviews you have a lot that's going on and then clicking the lights off putting on you know the eagle game versus atlanta just to see how they played Atlanta, how Atlanta played Philly. They're in our division. Um, a little bit more on Philly. And it's kind of like, let me finish being like completely miserable here <laughs> before, we, before we get on to the next season. And what was it about that game that made you say, you don't know if you'll ever get over that loss? I don't think, look, it, it was, it was it wasn't anything specific about that game. I think in our profession, when you have one of those challenging losses, like, and hopefully when your career ends as an athlete or as a coach, you've been on the better side of some of those games than the other side. And I think that some of those losses will just haunt you forever. I, I think that that's not unusual. Um, and you tend to, I think, remember them more than maybe some of your wins that you very well could have lost or should have lost. Um, to close this out, the, the most satisfying moment of your career would be what? Football-wise, it was, yeah. Sure. Um, well, look, obviously winning a championship with, with uh, the, the, the journey from Katrina in a short period of time, six, seven, eight, boom, there it is. That, that was pretty, that was exciting. And it, there's a group of guys, coaches, players that made a lot of sacrifices like every team does that were unique, that will always have that in common, will always walk together. And that, and that was something that, that I would definitely say um, was 
right there at the peak. And, and when I tell you how um, intoxicating it is, it, it's every bit what you think and more. And it's what drives you here to get another one. Uh, gun violence, uh, you've spoken out on a couple of occasions now about it, hit close to... It's not uh, popular here when I speak about it, but... It's not. Well, I think demographically it is in the city, but it's not in the state of Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, this it, would be a pro-gun state, I would imagine, and yet I, I don't really care. It struck close to home when one of your players well, Smith was died right gunned down here. with the, I guess, drunken driving dispute. Um, your thoughts on the issue? Well, my thoughts are clear. It's madness. This, our amendment rights, and I think our founding fathers, if they sat here right now, would, would have like a frickin', they would, they would be blown away by what we're, what we're allowing relative to what their intention was. And understanding all of the, the reasons. I'm, and I'm not against guns, but I am certainly in favor of a lot more restrictions than the current. Here's the problem. In my business, if the quarterback keeps getting sacked and I continue to send the team out there with the same play and he keeps getting sacked, and 20 years now the other teams, these other countries, he's not getting sacked as much. It would seem foolish that I continue to keep sending them out there. There, there, there are some solutions, and the problem is we're, we're, we're dealing with generations that were raised with these beliefs from our parents. Look, we root for our teams our parents root for. We, we, we vote initially how our parents voted. We, we, we learn a lot from our parents, good and bad, all of us. We really do. And so when you're trying to move a direction, it becomes, man, that's one of those hot button topics. People get upset and what is plan B? Like in other words, when I hear them talking about like arming every teacher, are you, it, I, I just hear there's, and I don't want to use the word, but at times I hear a lot of ignorance and, and that's just the truth the way I look at it. And, I want to see five years of, of a stricter policy because I, I know for a fact that there's history that's shown that that works in other countries. And, but the direction uh, is just, this city, this city's a danger. This is the second most dangerous state to live in. Mississippi one, Louisiana two. When you factor in crime, when you factor in workplace environment, you, and so, you know that it just doesn't seem smart as a uh, as a society. Uh, how do you view President Trump's comments on the national anthem issue? Um, I struggle with them, and in recognizing everything uh, that he's trying to do is for an, another another uh, agenda. So uh, th listen, we could spend another hour on that, but I, I think uh, uh, never have we had a more divisive person in a position of leadership like we currently do. That's unfortunate, regardless of your belief politically. Never have we had a more divisive person. 
for our country. And the great thing is there'll be midterms here shortly and then another election and our country's always shown a way to right itself. Um, what, if you were in charge yourself of uh, solely making the decision for how to address the anthem issue in the NFL, what would you do? Well, I, I think that's a great question. I think this, I think it, the problem we had with this was in the very beginning not having a clear, so when one of our players speaks and talks and, and they can get a receptive ear or a blank ear and they're smart enough to understand what a blank ear is and the blank ear says they're listening and they're giving money but they're not really listening and the receptive ear takes an action in a way that addresses some of their concerns, rightfully so. If you look at the history of what took place, it was a perfect storm now in a negative way. The, the election of Trump, the uh, Missouri killing, Baton Rouge killing, um, Kaepernick after the first year, and the, this all happened within a seven month time frame and we, we as a league and, and, and as a union didn't handle it correctly and look, we're so ingrained as coaches now and players to say, well, we're, we're waiting for a policy. Um, and understanding that this is the first thing though where I think we get this wrong. Man, our players love our military. Our players have family members in our military, all right? Um, it has nothing to do with, it. There's, there's more respect from our players towards our military. And most of all players, all right, all of our players proudly stand for the anthem and yet, and here we are the day before we're getting ready to play a game in the NFL, the President of the United States comes out and goes over the line and purposely, you know, comes out with some very disturbing remarks to divide us. And man, I, I, I said after that game, and I've said before, I, I fully support our players' right to, to peacefully say, ah, I, I don't agree. I, I mean, that's what our military worked their butts off for. And so I think we'll have a solution to this. To answer your question in the beginning, uh, I, think, I think we needed to be, as a league, a, a better ear and, and pay more attention to and not just give lip service to it. And uh, so that, that's still, listen, that's still ongoing. That hasn't disappeared. And quite honestly, this president won't make it any easier for that to disappear. And, and, I, and I understand. Uh, uh, let's end with Drew Brees. Uh, one of the greatest free agent signings in history. What do you think you saw that others didn't? We all saw a talented player. We all saw a great work ethic. We all saw a great makeup. I, I, honestly, and I'm, I'm trying to be fair to that question, he had an injury that was unprecedented at his position. No, there was no other quarterback that had a completely um, torn shoulder the way, injured shoulder the way he had. Um, we were a team, remember now, we're back to like we're, we're trying to find coaches and players that want to come. Right. I mean, so was it more you were willing to take more risk? We're Jerry risk Maguire with the goldfish no saying, who's coming? Yeah. All right. And we're looking for um, anybody who's coming. 
So with Drew, we had to be, we had to overpay. And I, I don't mean that we had to be aggressive in our, prep, in our, in our pursuit of Drew because we, we weren't winning the jump balls. And so, but man, we saw all these traits though. And the one thing we said was, if there's gonna be a player to overcome an injury like that, it's gonna be the make, it's gonna be Drew Brees. It's gonna be someone wired like Drew. So. And you did have to overpay too, relative to what the other offers were. Well, yeah. it, it, look, he, it was important that he felt we badly wanted him. Despite everything else, despite the blue tarps, despite the conditions of the road, the crime, despite all of the devastation, all of us really in the end want someone to have a vision for us and, and really pursue us and want us. And it was important that we, I remember, man, we spent a ton of time on putting this PowerPoint together and Pete Carmichael, who was on the staff with <clears throat> the Chargers and knew Drew, it was coincidence, um, was helping us with the preparation. Pete was the, you know, the coordinator and there were just so many things we were trying to, because we knew we weren't winning any of the outside jump balls. Like, th there wasn't one. Right. Miami, uh, there wasn't one. Their plane was waiting to take them to, uh, to, to Florida. And it just had to be, it had to be, man, they, they really were excited. I was here on a visit, and they really want me to come, and they have a vision. And they, I sensed it. I had a good feeling about, it had to be that. We had to win that element, and I think we did. How bad of a fail was it the first time you took him and his wife around town? I struggled. Well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know my way around, and so here I'm giving the tour, and, and, and I, I should have been the tourist rather than the tour guide. We got lost. We, we were driving too long. We went to the North Shore, got lost on the South Shore. Brittany was falling asleep in the back seat, and I'm like, I might as well just drive him to the airport now. We're losing him. <laughs> Were you really thinking that at the time? Well, I'm just thinking this, this, listen, it's all relative. So when I say get lost, you should say, well, how long were you lost for? And then I said, ah, it was like two and a half hours. Like it was, we were in the car for two and a half hours. Okay. We weren't lost for two and a half hours. But what should have been an hour and 20 minute, let's look at some property and housing turned into a three hour <laughs> like tour. You and Breeze compared notes from your prior employers, right? When um, you guys got together, I believe. Like, how did that help? Um, I'm trying to f figure out what notes, like what? Like you just compared notes from your past stops. Like, so for Breeze, so, San Diego, for you, Dallas. So um, one, of the thing, one of the things that was important when you're, when you're new and you're hired new in our business and you're going to an organization and you're gonna build a, a team, you're, you're kind of starting your own, you know, it's like a startup really. And so you can at that very moment decide, hey, how do we wanna call this? How do we wanna do this? Um, where do we wanna put the coffee machine? Where do we wanna, and it's very common for us to use maybe some past experiences that we thought have been good. This is back to the good fortune of your bloodlines. Sometimes they're lucky, sometimes you're unlucky. And having been in New York and been in Dallas, it's like, man, I, there's some things that I really like what we did. And, and as a player, Drew comes from San Diego and Pete was there in San Diego and they talked about some of the terminology they use. That sounds good, let's do that. Um, 
There's something exciting about that experience in the first two years when I don't care where you've been and we've all, you know, we get in a routine with our job, but there's something exciting when there's like a, a 180 turn and we're starting again here. And what do you guys want to, and then you begin to, you begin to make decisions on the smallest things to the staff Christmas party all the way up to pregame warm up to what you want to call a certain blitz, what kind of protection you want, um, what your players eat at training. There's something energizing about starting new. And so that we were right on the front end of that. And Drew was far enough along in his career to have seen and been around some talented people that, you know, so there were certain things that he thought, man, we did some good things here. We named this play Flutie after Doug Flutie. And so today, it's 2018, we have a pass pattern named after Doug Flutie in our offense. It's, it's Doug's play. And you threw for more uh, yards in college than Doug Flutie. Gosh. So I read that stat, and John Elway, too. Uh, Ottawa newspaper, when you uh, Ottawa newspaper, uh, moved the Rough to Riders. Canada to play for the Ottawa uh, Rough Riders, pointed out that one. Um, how true is it that you guys are um, almost able to finish each other's sentences now in terms of uh, play calling? I think no different than these guys working here right now, being able to finish your question because you've been together so long. I think the same thing exists from a working relationship. Um, you're, you're experts at your one thing in your profession, and there's so much work that goes into a game plan that, look, there's a lot of stress on the quarterback position to be able to spit out all the information in eight seconds, go to the line of scrimmage, get to the right play, run the play, Drew's the type of player that would prefer to stress his Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that Sunday he can reduce some of that stress. And so it's not unusual to see him um, during the week, man, just whether it's a pass he misses in practice or something that happens when he's calling a play where he'll get visibly upset all of that is to create a calmer, um, more prepared, and easier game day and, and a much harder work week. So there's a lot of stress. And so when, when we start to call a play and it's, you know, boogie to green, right, slot, Z motion, like he'll have it. Knowing that he studied that plan, there's three plays coming from that, and, and he's thinking it's probably going to be K4, Z, snag, X, bullet. And so that sounds like a lot, and yet over 13 years of, of preparation and, and formation and understanding like how things are put together, it, it, it would be the same as these guys kind of understanding all your moves because you guys have done it so long. Thanks for listening to my interview with Sean Payton. To see our time on the football field and on a private jet to his son's high school game, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.